Now, when we left the book of Revelation the last time at the end of chapter 5, we saw a unique scene in the courts of heaven. The Apostle John was there and in the midst of this spectacular vision where he sees the throne of God and the elders before the throne and the four cherubim up above the throne of God and the multitude of angels all worshiping God, all lifting up their voices in, in exquisite praise and worship to the Lord. Suddenly a problem is introduced and in that there's a scroll in the right hand of God. And the question is, who's worthy to open up this scroll? We discussed in our last time together what that scroll would be. It's uncertain to know exactly. It, it seems as much as anything that it's the, it's the disposition, it's the culmination of history. It's God's instructions for the end, the wrapping up of the book. And the question is, who's worthy to open it? And the only one in all creation who was worthy to open it was not a creature at all, but the one who created everything, the Lamb of God. Now the Lamb took the scroll, and starting in Revelation chapter 6, he's going to open the scroll. And let's remember something about scrolls in the ancient world and the way that they were sealed. A scroll would be rolled up as a piece of paper could be rolled up, and the seals were put on where the, the edge lapped over to the rest of the roll. And seven seals would put, be put success, success, sequentially <laughs> upon the scroll as it worked its way down. Now, the, the idea was that the scroll could not be opened until all seven seals were loosed, right? It wasn't a case of, well, you lose one seal and you open a little bit of the scroll, and another scroll, you open a little more. No. Every seal holds the scroll together. So it's only after they're all removed that it can be revealed. And so we're going to get into the removal, the loosing of these first six seals in this chapter. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now again, from the previous chapter, we understand that this scroll is the history and the destiny of mankind and creation, and only Jesus, only the Lamb of God, has the right to loose the seals on this scroll and to unfold the culmination of all history. There's no man that has authority over the course of all human events. There's no angel that has this authority, only the Lord God. Now again, let's remember that if this scroll details the culmination of the history of creation, then these things must happen, the things regarding these seals must happen before the scroll is opened. The loosing of the seals is not the culmination of history itself, but the preparation for it. I mean, if I can skip ahead, when this scroll is open and, and you look at the culmination of it, you're going to see Jesus returning to the earth on a white horse to take glory and dominion over everything on this planet. But there are events that have to lead up to that. that there are things that must happen before that scene can be unfolded. 
And so now one of the seals is going to be loosed. Before it is, John here is one of the four living creatures, one of these majestic cherubim above the throne of God. One of these cherubim pauses in its unending worship of the Lord and says to John, come and see. It could be translated, go forth. The idea is simply, look at this, pay attention to this. And what does he see? Verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Some, perhaps they take their interpretive clues more from cowboy movies than from the Bible. They automatically assume that this rider upon the white horse is Jesus. Now, Jesus does return on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. But I'll just cut to the chase and tell you that I believe that this is not Jesus at all, but this is a satanic dictator who imitates Jesus. Now, there's no doubt about it that he rules. He wears a crown, right? There's no doubt about it that he exercises dominion over the earth. He went out conquering and to conquer. But the results of his rule, as described in the following verses, show that this is not the reign of Jesus. My friends, I'm here to tell you that when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth, death and destruction and war and famine are not going to follow in his wake. The whole context, the whole character of these seals absolutely forbid us from thinking that the rider of this first horse is Jesus. And you might say, well, why does he look like Jesus? Because the Antichrist is going to look like Jesus. Let's not kid ourselves, folks. When the Antichrist appears on this world scene, the world will regard him as a messiah. The world will regard him as what Jesus should have looked like. The world's expectation of a messiah. Don't forget that when Jesus came to this earth, and we've been noticing this especially as we study the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, when Jesus came to this earth, he was not the Messiah the world was looking for. This is the kind of Messiah the world is looking for. I have to say that verse 2 of Revelation chapter 6 is really an interpretive crossroads of the book of Revelation. You can tell a lot about how a person understands this book and all of God's prophetic plan by seeing how they understand the identity of this first writer. Those who think that the book of Revelation is mostly a book of history, and might I say, there's a lot of people who believe that. I think they're wrong. But I might even say that that has been the majority view through the history of Christianity. That the book of Revelation just symbolically and fancifully describes history. Things that have already happened in the church. And only till the very end of the book does it describe things that have yet to happen. I don't believe that's correct. Not for a moment. I believe that for the most part the church has misunderstood prophecy through its history. And in the last hundred years or so, people have come to a better understanding of things. Friends, I think it's important for us to realize that, that those who, who think that the book of Revelation is mostly a book of history, well, I'll tell you what some of the commentaries I've read. Some of them say that this is Jesus, 
Some of them say it's the apostles. Some of them say it's Roman emperors. But those who believe that this book of Revelation is mainly prophetic in character and yet to be fulfilled, well, they often account this writer to be the Antichrist. Now, this really fits. If you notice in verse 2, it says that this writer went out conquering and to conquer. This final satanic dictator over men will be more terrible than all previous dictators were. He will rule over men as a false messiah, and he will lead man in organized rebellion against God. If you want a pattern or a prototype of this final world dictator, go to the first world dictator, who was a man named Nimrod. In the days of the Tower of Babel, the Bible tells that there was a person who ruled over the region of Babel, that the man who probably initiated and supervised the construction of the Tower of Babel. And this first world dictator, his name was Nimrod. Friends, this, this man, this man is the predecessor of the Antichrist. It says in, in this passage in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, that this man was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And technically in the Hebrew, that phrase has the idea that this man was a mighty hunter of men and that he did this offensively in the face of God. Now, today's political and social leader <coughs> is certainly set for the emergence of this kind of political leader. The only thing that really waits is, is for the Lord to allow it in his timing. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is the one restraining the emergence of this Antichrist. And after the Lord has taken his church out of the way, the Holy Spirit will withdraw that particular restraint, and the Antichrist will come and be revealed. Now significantly, it's the first seal that's opened that brings this satanic dictator to prominence. We understand that this last phase of human history, this last seven-year period, sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that this period will begin when this dictator will confirm a covenant with Israel for this seven-year period. And it will, again, refer to this first horseman. Now, many people wonder if these four horsemen of Revelation are connected with this final period, but I think so. I think this initiates it. And look what follows on the heels of this first horseman. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. I want you to notice something. This writer doesn't need to bring war and destruction. Did you notice that? It doesn't say that he brings war and destruction. What does it say that he does? He takes peace. Do you understand that, that peace is God's gift to man? And if God takes it away, 
then men rush in with war and destruction. Peace is not the normal state of affairs among fallen men. Among fallen men, war is the common or the the natural state of affairs. So what this writer does is he simply takes away peace, and, and then there's war and destruction. Now notice, if you notice as well, in verse 3 and 4, it says that it was granted to the one who sat on the peace. Well, who grants the authority? Satan? No, the Lord. This is judgment from the Lord. This is the Lord looking at a Christ-rejecting, Christ-ignoring world and saying, here, I'll give you what, you what you long for. You don't want me? You don't want my peace? Fine, I'll take it away. And see how you fare then. And what would they do? If you notice in verse 4, it says simply that people should kill one another. You know, we live in the age of war and conflict. Do you know that since World War II, there have been more than, a hundred, more than 150 wars of one kind or another on the earth? And that any given time on the earth right now, there's as many as three dozen armed conflicts going on in the nations of the world. The nations of the world often spend more than a million dollars, excuse me, more than a trillion dollars a year on military expenses. The, The stage is set for this kind of red horse to come and the rider upon it to bring this kind of widespread warfare and bloodshed. Verse 5, the, the next horseman. And when he had opened the third seal, <clears throat> I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, we see this third horseman that goes forth. And this horseman is all about poverty and, and uh, scarcity and, and, and famine. The scales symbolize the need to very carefully measure and ration food. Again, it's about famine and scarcity. To see how bad it is, it, it talks about prices a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, that, that designates prices that are about 12 times higher than normal. It means that it would cost a day's wage not to buy a loaf of bread, but to buy the ingredients to make a loaf of bread. You've got to go out and make your own bread uh, for that price. Who knows how it would, much it would cost if they made it for you. This describes a time of famine when life will be reduced to the barest of necessities. We live in a very different world today than, and really we've known at any time during human history, where such a substantial population in the world knows nothing of famine or hunger. And we think about the proportion of the world's population today that that knows nothing of these things. What is it, 80, 90 percent of the world just famine, hunger, they just don't know anything about it. It's so terribly unique. When I've read books about uh, Holocaust sufferers and survivors during the Second World War, and and one of the most vivid things they describe is the incredible hunger they had. 
I mean, because when they were in these lives, in these camps, so deprived, that they, they just wouldn't give them food, or they give them the, just the barest amounts of food. And the things that people would do to one another just out of hunger, just out of the desire to, to have food. This describes a horrible, horrible judgment upon the earth. And understanding the ecological balance of the world today, it wouldn't take much to plunge the world into the kind of scarcity and inequity measured here. Although if you notice something, there's kind of a curious statement at the end of verse 6 where it says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. It seems to indicate that the nicer things will still be available for those who can afford them. That there will still be the oil and the wine that should not be harmed. So that we have the, the third horse here. That was, again, the, the scarcity and the famine. Now look at the, the fourth horse, this pale horse, verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given over to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. This last writer shows that there's going to be a tremendous death toll from the dictatorship, the war, the famine, and the other calamities that were described by the first three horsemen. I mean, you don't have the kind of dictatorship described by the first rider and the kind of uh, war and, and disruption by the second rider, the kind of famine described by the third rider without having the kind of massive death that you see from the fourth rider. When we think about it, we see kind of a precursor of this, an a, a echo in advance of this during our century. Staggering to think of the 20th century and how hundreds of millions of people I'll say it again, hundreds of millions of people have been killed by dictators, war, and famine. You know, many people take a look at, at what uh, Adolf Hitler did during the Second World War, and they kind of hold that up as the worst example of it. Did you know that there's at least two dictators who made uh, Adolf Hitler look paltry in comparison? Joseph Stalin and, and Mao Zedong of China both were directly responsible for the deaths of many millions of people more than Adolf Hitler was. Staggering to think about what's happened in our century. You, you probably need more than one hand to count the significant cases of genocide in the 20th century. Yet all of this will pale in comparison to the death toll coming in the wake of this ultimate dictator. Let me tell you what Jesus said concerning this time. He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Do you understand what Jesus said by that statement in Matthew 24, verse 21? He said that the time of great tribulation that's coming upon the earth will be the worst time that any people have ever seen on planet Earth. That's pretty staggering. Because when you think about the bad times that have been before, just in the 20th century, and Jesus saying, no, that's not the worst of it. No wonder he called it the Great Tribulation. Now, verse 9, here's the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls... 
under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Very interesting how... We're getting excited here, aren't we? Here's the scroll. And the scroll is the culmination of all of human history. We want to see the scroll open, right? You want to see what's in there. And so it's like rubber bands on there. You can picture the seals as rubber bands. And the first one got rolled off, right? And the second and the third and the fourth. And we're down to the fifth seal. There's only three of them left. You start to get kind of excited. So here's the fifth ones getting rolled off there. And it's gone. What is it? Then John sees under the altar, apparently, an altar in heaven. Those souls, those souls that had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. Now, what are they doing under the altar? It seems that this idea is drawn from Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, where it talks about the lifeblood of an animal being poured out at the base of the altar as a demonstration of sacrifice unto God. This emphasized the idea that the lifeblood of these saints was poured out as an offering to God. And then, why were they killed? They were slain for the word of God. Now, it seems perhaps particularly relevant that these saints were slain during this time of great tribulation, during this reign of the four horsemen. But it may be broader than that. This may be the cry of the martyrs, period. The cry of all the godly martyrs, stretching all the way to Abel, to to the last one who's slain. Every godly martyr, they may unite their voices to God right now and say, when are you going to open that scroll? When's it all going to be settled? When is our death going to be avenged? You see, it says here, verse 10, that they cried, and only they cried with a loud voice. And they cry out for vengeance. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We usually don't think of God's people, especially God's people in heaven, as crying out for vengeance. But let me tell you, there's two aspects of this, or at least one aspect that's very important. First of all, they're making their cry to God. You got to cry for vengeance? Then make it to God. Lord, how long until you avenge me? It's better to pray a thousand prayers like that than to go out and to try to take vengeance on it yourself. Leave it to God. And that's what they did. They made the cry to God, they leave the matter with him. Friends, we can take it as an assurance that when God's people are persecuted, he will set it right. Now, it's not wrong for God's people to ask him to do what he's promised to do. 
God, you promise to set it right when your people are persecuted. So we say, how long, O Lord, until you do it? That's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God to perform what he's promised. So as the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground for vengeance, and as the blood of unavenged murders spoke out to God from Israel, even though these, they cry out to the Lord. And so what's said to them? Verse 11. And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. God has a message for these. He says, wait. Well, how long are they supposed to wait? They're supposed to wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren is completed. Wait until... All God's appointed martyrs are killed. Wait until God has finished this work. I want you to notice something. In your translation, at least in mine, I hope it is in your edition too, it says, until both the number of their fellow servants. The words, the number of, that's in italics. And do you know what it means when you come across in the Bible text, Words that are italicized. It means that those words are not in the original text. And they are supplied by the translators because they think those words will help you make sense of what's being said. And most of the time it does. But not in every occasion. What I'm trying to say is that the thought may mean that, that it's not so much the number needs to be fulfilled as the character of the remaining martyrs on earth is perfected and complete. God says, wait, wait until these finer martyrs, until their character is perfected and complete, until they are made complete in him, and then they're brought home. And let me tell you one of the reasons why I think that's important to at least suggest here, is that it's not the way that you live that makes you, excuse me, it's not the way that you die that makes you a martyr. It's the way that you live. Many of us think, well, you know, being a martyr, that's something so far from us. We can't know. You may never be called upon, and, and I would prevention say that I, I, probably nobody in this room will ever be called upon to die the death of a martyr. But you can live the life of a martyr right now. You can live your life with that attitude. I would never say that, that persecution is a good thing for the church. Because when you, when you look at, at places and, and situations where Christians have been persecuted, it brings such a tremendous stress into the church. And it really is a difficult, difficult thing for Christians to face. So I would never say that it's a good thing for Christians to be persecuted. I would say that good things come of it. And God accomplishes good things through that. And part of it is the perfecting of our character. So here we're really getting excited because now there's only two seals left, right? We're, we're almost there. So look at the sixth seal. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll 
when it's rolled up and every mountain, every island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Describes for us, first of all, in verse 12, a great earthquake. And then all this kind of cosmic disturbance. We're struck by the earthquake, of course, living where we live in Southern California. The earthquakes are very humbling things, aren't they? When you realize that the ground you stand on isn't as stable as you thought it was. And how the, the slightest shaking of the earth can change things so profoundly, it's humbling. But that's the least of it. Look what else happens. The sun, black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. You know, in the Bible, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all describe such things. Let me read to you from Zephaniah chapter 1. Beginning at verse 14, here's a good example. He says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick uh, darkness, a, a day of trumpet and alarm against fortified cities and against the high towers. Or how about this one in Joel chapter 2? The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? You see, I I think we're going to have these amazing, amazing things before the return of Jesus Christ. And I believe that these things happen at the very end of this period, this last period of human history. Other indications that we have from the book of Revelation give us the reason to believe this happens at the the very, very end, right before Jesus returns. Now, I think it's interesting because when you find the commentators who regard these passages history, these are things that have already happened in the history of the church, they have to spiritualize everything a whole lot. Now, when when it says an earthquake here, do, do you know what I believe it is? An earthquake that shakes the world and is really scary and makes a lot of things fall down. I think that's what it means. But if you believe that this is all describing history, you have to spiritualize everything. The earthquake isn't an earthquake. I'll read you one commentator named Adam Clark. He gives a good example of this. He describes this great earthquake as a most stupendous change in the civil and religious constitution of the world. If it referred to Constantine the Great, the change that was made by his conversion to Christianity might be very properly represented under the emblem of an earthquake. No. It shakes the ground a lot and is really scary and makes a lot of things fall down. It's an earthquake. And so when it says that the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood, that's what it's going to look like. 
Now, if you ask me, well, how exactly will it happen? And what exactly? I don't know. I mean, th- there's some poetry in, the, in this description here. But when you look at the sun on that day, hopefully from the courtyard of heaven looking at it, you're going to say, man, that sun looks black like sackcloth of hair. It's not a scientific technical description, but it describes what it's going to look like. Same thing with the moon. When it says, the stars of heaven fell to the earth. No, I don't think that, you know, Andromeda out there is going to crash into the earth. But it'll look like stars are just dropping from the horizon. It'll look like the stars are falling down to the horizon. Now again, how is it going to happen technically? I don't know. But this is what it's really going to look like. And can you imagine the terror that will grip the planet on that day? The terror of man to realize that these things that they've counted on through every day of human history, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these things, it's going to be shaken up completely. They're going to know that there's a force far more powerful than anything created in this world. When it happens, look what's going to happen, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. All people are equally brought low by God's wrath. And the judgment is all the more profound. Because look at it here in verse 16. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. That's even more frightening. That it's the wrath of the lamb. Lambs are not scary animals. You don't look at a lamb and say, oh, that's going to hurt me. You know, I better not let it see the fear in my eyes. You don't think that way around a lamb. But when you think about the lamb of God and his wrath, It's all the more sobering because it's the wrath of love. It's the wrath of sacrificial love, which did the absolute utmost to bring that person to salvation. Yet when that sacrifice is rejected again, again, and again, then when the wrath finally comes forth, it's all the more terrible because it's brought by the one who could have saved you if you would have received him. And so they say, hide us. Did you notice this, verse 16? Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. It's not, hide me from the stars that are falling to the earth. Hide me from the earthquake. Hide me from the mountains that are crumbling into the sea. It's not, hide me from the calamity. It's not, hide me from the suffering. It's, hide me from God. Because what sinners dread most is not fear, it's not the the fear of death, but it's the revealed presence of God. They won't be able to avoid him anymore. Here he is. You've come before his throne, and you'll come face the wrath of the Lamb. So look at the question. The great day of his wrath has come, And who is able to stand? We'll discuss that question in just a moment, but let me speak just 
sort of wrapping up here this evening. How do these seals fit into God's prophetic plan? Well, we have seven seals described here in the book of Revelation. We're leaving on a cliffhanger, right? You got six of the seals off. Only one left. I mean, surely the next portion is going to say how the next seal came off and you just open it all up. No, that's not how it's going to work. You got seven seals. You got seven bowls. You got seven trumpets. Now, I don't think that these things are chronologically arranged. It, it kind of looks like that as you look at the text, but, you know, I don't think Revelation is really written as a chronological book. I think the six seals are a summary of all the judgments. The war, the famine, the destruction. And the bowls and the trumpets are going to give us another look at these judgments. Because here, if you notice, at the end of the sixth seal, Jesus is returned to the earth, isn't he? He's coming. Now going into chapter 7, you say, let's put it in rewind and, and do it again. This is a very Hebraic way of describing things. You tell a story, then you tell it again, and you fill in some more details, and then you tell it again and fill in some more details. Chronologically, what happens after chapter 6 is chapter 19. But what we're going to do is we're going to rewind and talk about it some more, and then rewind and talk about it some more. So this span here of chapter 6 begins with the revelation of the Antichrist, and it ends with the revelation of Jesus Christ in his return. Now there's another issue having to do with these seals. Some people think that these seals do not describe the conditions of this very final period of human history, but of all of human history leading up to it. Now, there's a sense in which we can say that's true. I mean, the last 2,000 years have been marked by dictators, war and famine and death and persecution. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think any of them can match the magnitude and the severity with which those things will be present in the Great Tribulation. You see, we've seen death and famine and earthquakes and all these things on the earth before, but never, never like you're going to see them during this great tribulation. And so you might say that these seals are kind of an intense amplification as the course of the world as usual. God's going to give man over to his fallen nature and more. And so the bottom line is, is that we don't want to be here for it, do we? Jesus said that we should be counted worthy to escape these things. I believe that Christians will not be here during this great tribulation, during this final period of human history. God will take his people out of the earth before that time. And so the sixth seal concludes with a valid question. Look at it there, verse 17 for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, only the believer can stand before this great God, the one who's justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to it. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. That's our standing. 
First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, where Paul says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. Or how about First Peter chapter 5, verse 12, testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now why can we stand before the wrath of God? I mean, who do we think we are? To stand up, stand tall before God of all wrath. Do you know why we can do it? It's because Jesus stood in our place to take the wrath that we deserved. Think about it. This tremendous wrath of God, when it says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What makes you think that's not coming on you? What, is it because you don't deserve it, but they do? No. We deserve it. We deserve the wrath of God. And if you don't think so, then pray a little prayer. Say, God, you show me whether or not I deserve your wrath. You pray that prayer in sincerity. You don't see if the Lord doesn't answer that prayer for you. And just show you some of your own sinfulness and how much you deserve his wrath. No, the reason why we are able to stand in the midst of it isn't because we don't deserve it. No, we do. But Jesus stood in our place. He said, I'll take the wrath that they deserve. That's what he did on the cross. He stood in our place. And the punishment that we deserved was put on him. The wrath of God that was directed towards us, the Father put upon him. And so we can stand before God on that day. Because his righteous judgment has been satisfied. His wrath has been poured out. His wrath is going to be poured out on sin. That's all there is to it. But it'll either be poured out upon Jesus on the cross or upon the sinner in hell. We want to receive what Jesus did on our behalf. Now, next week, you know, this is one of the things about the book of Revelation. You would think that chapter 7 would talk about the seventh seal, right? It doesn't. You get all through these six seals, you're sitting on the edge of your seat, give me the seventh seal. He says, no, let me talk about something else. Then in chapter 8, when he gets into the seventh seal, well, you're going to have to see something special about that too. But let's leave it with this this evening. And thank the Lord in prayer that we can stand before him. Father, we recognize that it's nothing in ourself, O oh Lord. Nothing in ourself that makes us worthy to stand before you. But Lord, it is something great in you. That you took the wrath that we deserved. I pray that every person here tonight would would live a life of trusting in you when it comes to that. And Lord, if there's somebody here tonight, and honestly, it's never made sense to them before how this could all work and why it works. and Maybe they never really saw the need for it before. I pray that tonight you turn the light on in their mind, in their heart. Help them to see the greatness of Jesus standing in our place so that now we can stand before you on the day of judgment. Thank you, Lord. And thank you that you've promised that we'll be delivered from this wrath that you're going to pour out upon the earth. Set us free, Lord, and thank you 
for doing it. We praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.